One thing I want to do today before we get too far into the sermon is I want to take the edge off of one of our cultural identifiers. And what I mean by cultural identifiers is it's a thing that's sort of become commonplace in how we view the world. So, for example, in, in my mind, it seems that we are very skeptical these days. Would you agree? More so than I think in other eras. And I think you can see this by pop art and pop culture and the things that people are drawn to and that they spend their money on. You know, in the golden age of Hollywood, then even in the 50s or 60s, a lot of Americans used to love to go see movie musicals. Lots of dancing and singing. Uh, Movies like The Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, which was on TV last night. They were real contenders uh, for uh, Best Picture Oscars, and some even won. And we believe that when emotion hits circumstance, people just had to break out in song to truly express what they were feeling. Or at least we were willing to suspend our disbelief. Now that seems corny. And today, usually, the only musicals that do well at all typically are for children, right? Let it go, let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. A little earworm for you. Um, But when emotion hits circumstance, I'm going to suggest today that spontaneous eruptions of joy are very much possible. They literally can happen. For example, if you've been waiting your whole life for something, if you've pretty much given up hope that it will ever happen, this can happen. Not the square photo, please. Okay, you don't have to play it anymore. That's good. My point being that there are moments when spontaneous emotion combines with circumstance and you get displays like that. Now, there's no singing in this clip, but there was a spontaneous tossing of the hat. Did you see that? And tossing your hat, that's pretty cliche, right? It happens, though. It can happen. Um, but it wasn't manufactured, it was truly real. And today we're going to look at a spontaneous moment in the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is supposed to have actually burst into song at one point. And we're going to look at, how, look at her song today and what it can reveal to us about God and why that's good news for all of us. Does that sound interesting? All right, let me read it to you. This is Mary's song. It's sometimes called the Magnificat. Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, one of the reasons we're looking at this passage today is because Mary tells us right at the beginning of her song that she's going to reveal deep things about God to us. You notice she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. If you think about it in the wrong way, it doesn't even make sense. How could you, for example, give glory, like add glory to God, who you would imagine has all the glory that anyone could ever imagine? (coughs) And this is also an interesting way to talk about her soul. It glorifies God, or as some have translated, it magnifies God. And that's an odd thing, too. When we magnify things, we often take things that are small and put them under a microscope and make them much, much bigger. But magnify actually, I think, is a really helpful way to think of what is happening with Mary here because magnification isn't just taking something that is small and making it big so that you can see it. It's also taking something that is unfathomably large and far off and hard to see and magnifying it so you can actually see the details of a planet like Jupiter with a telescope. And that's what I think Mary is talking about here when she bursts in the song. She says, my soul glorifies God. My soul magnifies God. Something about what she is going to sing isn't going to add anything to God that he doesn't have already, but it's going to make him visible in a way that he wasn't before. He's going to be magnified so that we can see something about who he is or what he does. That's important that on our own we often might miss or assume something else. Now, Mary here, she's just had a powerful moment for a little context. She's visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who is farther along in her pregnancy. I think she's about six months. And when Mary walks in, and Mary's pregnant with Jesus, but not very far along, Elizabeth's baby, like, goes crazy, starts dancing a jig inside her womb. And she says, she, my paraphrase is, oh, my goodness, that baby in you is going to change the world, and you are a blessed woman. And that just confirmed for Mary something that Angel had already told her, and then she bursts into song. Her heart is so full that her soul is literally going to magnify or give us a picture of who God is. So that's why we're paying attention to this passage today. And we're looking at the good news of Mary. Now, what is the good news of Mary? Anyone interested? What is she magnifying? What are we going to find out? Well, Mary's good news is a coming revolution. Now, this may not fit you, but if you have ever been an 18, 19, or 20-year-old Christian... And you may not have been. The idea of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, bringing revolution may at an older age make you sigh. Ah, cynicism. So comfortable. You see, when I was 19, I wanted Jesus to be this. This is a famous uh, image that was used by the Anglican Church in 1999 to <coughs> advertise and encourage people <coughs> to attend Easter service. 
And it's, uh, it's an overlay of Jesus to a very famous image of Che Guevara, <coughs> who's a famous revolutionary. And when I was 19, everything about Jesus was radical. Everything about Jesus was revolutionary. <coughs> if he said hello to someone, <coughs> my mind was blown. It had to be totally crazy. It had to be <coughs> revolutionary. <coughs> Excuse me. And in my mind, Jesus had been dumbed down, <coughs> watered down, and pacified by old people and years of stodgy, rich religion. If we really understood Jesus, we'd see this guy. And after years go by, and you get tired of hearing how radical Jesus was, you start to ask yourself, is everything Jesus ever did and said really revolutionary? <clears throat> Do we need to cool our jets on some things? But here's the thing. If you pay close attention to what Mary actually sings in this song, it sounds suspiciously like a song of revolution. <clears throat> you see, there are Advent songs. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> you may get a few coughs today, guys. I'm sorry. There's honey in this, so I'm hoping it helps. <clears throat> there are Advent songs and there are Christmas songs. Do you know the difference? So, um, Advent songs... By the way, both are awesome and helpful, but they focus on different things. Advent focuses on waiting and longing <clears throat> and hoping and anticipating, looking for light in a very dark place, in a very dark world, and everything culminates in the restoration of Israel. That's an Advent song. Um, think O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. You see the theme there? that mourns in lonely exile here in a dark place waiting to be delivered. That's an Advent song. Christmas songs are different. They focus on the wider implications of Jesus coming to earth. The salvation of all people, personal renewal, being born anew, reconciliation of different people groups. Think Hark the Herald Angels Sings. Maybe you know this one. Born that men and women no more may die. Born to raise the sons and daughters of earth, right? This larger salvation theme that goes even beyond the people of Israel. So what's Mary's song? Anybody? What's Mary's song? Advent or Christmas? Oh, this is totally Advent. This is your stereotypical down-the-line Advent song. She talks about bringing down rulers, uh, humbling the proud, it culminates in the helping and remembering and fulfilling of promises to, wait for it, Israel. And there is really no mention of any personal or internal renewal or salvation in this song at all. It's a song about regime change. It is. Of the redemption and restoration of Israel. Mary doesn't sing about the salvation of the world. She sings about the rise of Israel. And that's good news to her. Why? Well, for one reason, because her soul is reflecting that this revolution favors the vulnerable and the humble. So verse 51, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. 
but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. This is who God is. It just is. This is who God is. And I would venture to say, I think it's probably impossible to read the whole Bible and not come away with the impression that God favors the poor, the vulnerable, and the humble. And those who stand with them. Jesus said a lot of things. One of them was, if you do it to the least of these, the most vulnerable, the most forgotten, you do it to me. Cornelius, he was the first non-Jewish people to be welcome, person to be welcomed in the kingdom of God. And it says in the story of Cornelius's salvation experience that God noticed him because he gave alms to the poor. And he became the first Gentile convert, if you will, to this new kingdom of God movement. You see, in God's economy, everything we have is a gift. It's grace. And to say that you deserve it and withhold it from people in need is to be proud. The proud are scattered and the rich go away empty. This is God. This is his heart. This is the way his kingdom works. And this, if we keep reading, is Jesus, who came as someone much more accomplished Uh, who came as someone much more accomplished than me once said, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's good news for all of us. Because it means that in the kingdom of God, the system isn't rigged. And you've been, been talking about the system being rigged? Lots of people, right? Not in the kingdom of God. It also means you don't have to be a bully to survive and thrive. I know that right now in our society, for many of us, it feels like you have to. But according to Mary's good news, we all have a choice. Got to do what I got to do. No. According to Mary, we're liberated to choose. You see, the good news of Mary also confirms that you can choose and you have a role to play. You have a purpose. And one of the reasons that Mary bursts into song is not just that revolution is coming, but that she is right in the middle of it. Did you notice that? For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, speaking of herself. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She gets to give birth to Jesus. What do you get to give birth to? Mary was a poor, unwed, teenage mother from a small, oppressed people group in a giant empire. She didn't have a lot of prospects, not a lot of resources, and not much was expected of her. And she gave birth to God. Another example of God favoring the vulnerable and the humble. The people that sometimes we're tempted to overlook. If Mary can have a role, 
The door's open to all of us. Where do you see injustice? What needs to change or be revolutionized around you? That's a real question. I'm not, it's not a rhetorical one. I want you to consider, where do you see injustice? What needs to be changed or revolutionized around you? What would be good news in that situation? I want you to actually think about that. In your mind's eye, in your heart, what would good news look like? And what is God asking you to do? What are you to give birth to? What's that thing you kind of try and ignore sometimes? Because it seems a little overwhelming or too big or you might fail. People might not believe that you could do anything about it and laugh at you. So sometimes you think about it, but you kind of push it away. Whatever that thing is, our community would like to support you. When we get back from Christmas in the winter, there's going to be a few things to watch for that are opportunities for you to bring your idea, your passion, the, thing, the injustice that you notice, and have people come around you and support you. Watch for a thing called LDI, Leadership Development Intensive. You have to have an idea to do that. One of the things we've learned over the 10 plus years that we've been going here at Mosaic is that the, the ideas of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes the biggest, most powerful, best ones, usually are in your heart, not mine. And our job is to help you Engage with that. Get in touch with that. And then put the resources around you so that you can do something about it. So you can get people on your team. Or you can be on someone else's team. These are real questions, not just for fun reflection in a sermon, but for action. And as you're thinking about it, you may not know up front what this, the answer to this question, but I think it's helpful to ask yourself, <laughs> what are you willing to sacrifice for that vision as well? Here's what I mean. So this revolution, it's going to advance through pain and sacrifice. So giving, for, uh, giving birth is painful and messy, and many of the women here know this. And I've been in the room. Um, so I can't understand it to the same level, for sure. But it's actually more than this, and I think this is actually something, what I'm going to talk about next, that Mary didn't quite understand, even as she's seeing an inspired God that reflects very true and real things about who he is. I don't think she got every detail of the story. Some of it was revealed to her later. In the next chapter, verse 34 and 35, she brings Jesus to the temple. 
and uh, they're doing some uh, (coughs) purity rituals as a family. And one of the priests there, Simeon, says this, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Jesus' mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So what we're seeing today is Mary's soul magnifying the Lord. But before it's all done, her soul is also going to be pierced. I don't think Mary saw this coming. She likely expected some sort of regime change where her son, Jesus, would end up on the throne in Jerusalem. Not on a cross outside the city. But actually here lies the last bit of good news from from Mary today. News that no one saw coming. And this good news offers liberation to everyone. I don't think she saw this coming. Nobody did. The story was a story of one small people group, the Israelite people. No one realized the story was going to expand to the whole world. You see, in the revolutions that we know, the goal is to destroy and vanquish the enemy. God's plan, however, was to redeem those who would be considered the enemy. Sharp Roderson wrote a page that the reference is in your bulletin if you want to read the whole article. And she said this, <coughs> Yet, God did not triumph over oppressors through a vindictive act, but rather a loving one. God wants oppressors to change and join the mission of the kingdom rather than be destroyed. That's different. And that happened through self-sacrifice. That happened by turning the other cheek. That happened by dying on a cross. Jesus was a revolutionary, but not in the vein of Che. He had no enemies, only people he wished to liberate. And you know what? Here's the thing. That doesn't change the validity of Mary's song at all. Actually, Mary was right. There was a regime change. But it didn't come through violence. Within roughly 400 years from the time she sings this song, this religion, this Jesus faith of the poor, of the vulnerable, and of the humble, and that's who was attracted to it in the beginning, took over the Roman Empire. It did. It had such momentum that even the emperor chose to embrace, or some would say co-opt, the Christian faith. It won. There was regime change. You know, there's a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. It's written by a sociologist. And I understand that he's not coming from a Christian perspective. He's just a sociologist looking at history and writing. And he was intrigued by how a tiny obscure messianic movement, and there had been plenty before Christianity, from the edge of the Roman Empire became the dominant religious force in the Western world in less than 400 years. So to give you an example, in the year 40, there are about 1,000 Christians in the whole world. 
By the year 350, it's estimated that were, there were near 34 million Christians that made up 56% of the empire's entire population. And they didn't do it with swords or violence. How did they do it? Well, that's the question Rodney tried to answer. And he points to a few sociological reasons, but in chapter 4, he points to one particular characteristic of the early church, their willingness to die. Not in the traditional sense of martyrdom, like being burned at the stake for their faith or in a gladiator form or something like that, but in a non-traditional sense. You see, in the first 400 years of the Jesus movement, there were two very severe epidemics. And reports indicated that in certain regions, upwards of 30% of the population died. And in those times, there was no understanding of germs or bacteria, so they couldn't treat germs or bacteria. And when outbreaks would happen, people would literally run for the hills because that was considered the only safe place to avoid the plague. And for personal health reasons, driven by fear, and I would say a reasonable sense of self-preservation, people got out of Dodge, leaving the sick often to fend for themselves, sometimes lying in the street. Everyone ran, it seems, except for Christians. Christians had both a view of the afterlife that gave them a sense of peace in the face of death, and as Stark puts it, a prescription for action, a mission to pursue, namely to take care of the sick, regardless of their background, pagan, Christian, or otherwise. Regardless of their background, pagan, Christian, or otherwise. And at the height of the second great epidemic, this is around 260 Common Era, the bishop of Alexandria, Dionysus, wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives caring for others. He described their behavior this way. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And he goes on to refer to them as martyrs, but it wasn't just Christians who noticed the sacrificial service of the early Jesus followers. About 100 years later, the Roman, Empire, Roman emperor Julian was very dismayed, upset, and in an attempt to turn the tide of public opinion away from the Christian faith, he launched a very specific campaign to institute uh, pagan charities to match the Christians and their charity work. And he was concerned that the recent Christian growth was caused by their, quote, moral character, even if pretended. He thought they were faking it. And by their, quote, benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. So respect even for those who had passed. And referring to Christians as Galileans, he wrote, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. So the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And in the end, Stark credits part of the success of Christianity to the willingness of early Christians to care for, even at great cost to themselves, those in need of all backgrounds. No enemies. No violence. Just revolution. And this is what we need today.
people who don't go to church in Philadelphia pretty much don't think too highly of Christians these days for a myriad of reasons. Some of them, I think, were probably valid. Most think that Christians see them as the enemy. But with Jesus' revolution, there are no enemies, not people. Paul, a follower of Jesus, later wrote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood from any faith background, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the world. There are no enemies in Jesus' revolution, just people to be won over who will glorify and magnify God by sacrificing for those around them. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would open our hearts to people, open our hearts in a new way to people who are different from us, And I pray you'd show us the need around us in a way that we just can't forget. And I pray that it wouldn't just be a burden that we see and we don't know what to do, but that really practical ideas would come, maybe from friends who see the same thing, maybe to our own hearts. But help us to follow you into this era of history in our nation, and in the world. And our prayer, and this is a big prayer, and I probably, we probably don't even fully understand what we're asking, is that we can follow the example of the early followers of Jesus who didn't fight with the sword, but fought by sacrificing their own good for the love and benefit of the people around them again and again. That's the story of the cross. That's what real revolution looks like. Amen.